passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. We are in the midst of um, 1 Samuel this morning, and we're going to continue our journey through 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 5 and chapter 6, and that's not a typo. We will actually be in chapter 5 and chapter 6. If you're wondering how we're going to make it through, I'm not sure either. Um, seriously, I'm a little nervous That's a <laughs> to cover these chapters. Um, if you've been with us so far in this, uh, in this book, one of the things that you've probably noticed as we've been working our way through the first few chapters is um, a very intentional discussion of, of God's concern for his own glory. That's what we see at the beginning of, of 1 Samuel. It's one of the overarching themes of the book of 1 Samuel, that we need the Lord's true king, and uh, first that's David, and then ultimately it's Jesus, because we need, and we need that king who's going to point us to the true king of glory, and that is, of course, God himself. And 1 Samuel chapter 5, 1 Samuel chapter 6, uh, they're no different in that regard, um, remember what we've seen so far over 1 Samuel, um, over the last, especially chapter 4 over the last couple of weeks, the, the Israelites and the Philistines, they're arrayed in battle against one another, and God actually defeats Israel because of their persistent rebellion against him, and uh, God doesn't only defeat Israel, but he also allows the ark, the, the symbol of God's presence with humanity, the symbol of their special relationship with God, he actually allows it to be captured and brought into uh, Philistia. And that's where it is uh, this morning when we pick up in chapter 5. And when we end chapter 4, we, we end with this, this picture of mourning, this picture of, of loss, and, and it would be easy for us to interpret the events of chapter 4 as not just this utter defeat of the people of Israel, but also this form of, of God's own weakness, that God was unable to defend the people of Israel. He was unable to defeat the Philistines and their god, Dagon. And so the question as we get into chapter 5 is, what about God? Is, is he who he really says he is? Is he actually uh, powerful or is he weak? Is he less glorious than the god of the Philistines? And that's, of course, what we'll look at this morning. And this is a passage where God proves his glory. God proves his glory to the people of Israel. God proves his glory to the Philistines. God actually proves his glory to anyone who's paying attention, anyone who's watching uh, from the outside looking in. And, and what I want us to do as we get started is just to, to consider right here at the very beginning the, the message, the overarching message of these verses. It's what we have on the screen, that no one and no thing can escape the glory of God. That's really the message that shouts from every single verse in these uh, two chapters, that no one or no thing can escape the glory of God. And that is true of the Philistines, that's true of the Israelites, and that's true for us this morning as well. So God proves this glory in three episodes here in these two chapters. First, he has this episode where he's, he's confronting the false god of the Philistines, Dagon, and then after that he's confronting the Philistines, and then finally he actually confronts the people of Israel as well. So that's actually going to be our roadmap this morning as we work our way through this text. Let's go ahead and jump into chapter 5. We're going to look at God and Dagon, 1 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. Now, before the pandemic, a number of churches here in uh, Spencer and in the surrounding communities, they actually held the softball league uh, where we'd gather together every summer, and the winner would receive this traveling trophy. And I remember the first time that we won, our church won, I was given this trophy that's probably about this big, and I had no idea what to do with it. Seriously, what was I supposed to do? I don't know what the other churches did. We weren't going to go put it in the entryway for an entire year to just show off that we had won this softball tournament. And because I contributed absolutely nothing to the team, I wasn't going to put it in my office either. So I had no idea what to do with this trophy. We actually ended up putting it in storage, um, and, it's been, and then we won again, and it's still in storage, and then we won again, and it's still in storage, and then COVID canceled the last two years. So 
Um, I think the other churches might think that we just stole it because it's still just sitting in storage and uh, who knows when we will bring it back out. But as we were working our way, or as I was preparing for this passage, I actually thought a lot about that trophy because in a way, that's the way the Philistines treat the ark of God in these verses. They had just beat the people of Israel at Aphek in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They capture the ark and they bring it back home with them. And, and they see not only their victory over the, Philistine, or over the Israelites as their superiority to the, the Israelites, but also they see their victory over the Israelites as a sign of their God's superiority to the God of Israel. And we're going to go ahead and, and jump in, but I just want to say one quick word about how to read these two chapters, because these are some of the most sarcastic chapters that you will find in the Bible. And so actually, one of the responses that, that you are not only okay, you not only have permission to do this, but actually encouraged to do as you read 1 Samuel chapter 5, 1 Samuel chapter 6, is to laugh. These chapters show how ridiculous how idiotic idolatry is. And, and the writer of 1 Samuel is writing in such a way to show us how ridiculous the people of, of Philistia are being, but then also asking us to look at our own hearts and how ridiculous we might be when we run to idols as well. So while you're reading this text, you have permission to laugh. You have a permission to, to snicker, to roll your eyes at the ridiculousness of the people of Philistia here. Let's go ahead and jump in to our passage starting in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. I mentioned this earlier, but in ancient times, when uh, two uh, two countries, two nations would, would join together in battle. The, the victory was not just seen as one nation's superiority to the other, but actually it was seen as one set of gods and their superiority to uh, a different set of gods. And so oftentimes you would take the idols of the gods that you had just conquered and you would bring them home as a trophy. And you would set them up at the front of the temple, right next to the God that you worship, as a sign of their subservience to your God. And that's exactly what the Philistines do here. And we're going to see very clearly through our text this morning that the Bible explicitly rejects this idea. The Bible rejects the idea that just because the Israelites lost, therefore God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, is subservient or weaker to Dagon. God is actually doing something, and 1 Samuel chapter 4 reminds us that God is the one who defeated the Israelites. And yet the, the people of, Philist, uh, of Philistia don't, don't know that yet, and so God is going to teach them a lesson reminding, him, reminding them that he alone is Lord, the King of all the earth. And so the people of Philistia, they bring the, the ark of God into the, the temple of Dagon, their chief God. They set it up just like they would with any other idol, and they say... Essentially, Dagon is superior to the God of Israel. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So when the people of Ashdod, one of the five leading cities of Philistia, when they wake up early in the morning, they arrive for worship and they walk into the temple and what do they find? They find that their idol Dagon has actually fallen face down in worship before the ark of God. And the people of Ashdod, they arrive to worship their superior God and yet they find their superior God lying face down, prostrate before the ark of God the true God. And yet it doesn't sink in for the Ashdodites, and so they do what any normal person would do. They go ahead and take Dagon, and they set him back up, put him in his place of superiority, and, and again, don't, don't miss the humor there that this superior God has to be picked back up, set back up, so that way he can be shown to be victorious and superior once more. And we look again, verse 4, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. 
and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were cut off, were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So the next morning, the people of, of Ashdod, they wake up and they see that God has, has decided to be a little bit more obvious to the, them. And not only do they find Dagon lying face down again, but this time they, have, they, they find that his head is chopped off and his hands are cut off and they're lying on the ground on the threshold, on the entryway to the temple. And this is a common practice in the ancient times. If you were a victorious king, one of the ways that you would show your victory, your superiority to the king and the nation that you just defeated, you would actually, and this is gruesome, I get that, but it's important to recognize for our text, you would actually decapitate the king, cut off their hands, and you would carry them around as a trophy to show your superiority to the king and to the nation that you had just conquered. It's graphic, but it gets the point across. And the text here tells us very clearly that that's exactly what God is doing. The reason why Dagon's hands and and head aren't attached to him anymore is because the idol, it's not because the idol took a tumble in the middle of the night and whoa, they just broke off. No, the text tells us that they are cut off and they are lying on the threshold. They're lying on the entryway into the temple. And so when the people of Ashdod, they arrive for worship of their great, victorious, mighty, superior king, they find their God lying decapitated, prostrate in worship of this weak and puny, defeated God of Israel. And yes, that's sarcasm. And they realize that something significant is happening here. Notice in verse 5, it tells us that because of this, this tradition started in Philistia that exists until the day that 1 Samuel is written, that when the people would come in to worship Dagon in the temple in Ashdod, they wouldn't step in the entryway. They'd actually jump over the entryway because the threshold was now holy because it had once held the hands and head of their God. And so even their worship practices, whether they realize it or not, are showing the superiority of the God of Israel to their own God. Now, I want us to notice one, one other thing before we continue. As we read 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 1 Samuel chapter 6, we notice that the, the text never tells us that God is doing things. It's not until we get to the very end in verse 19 of chapter 6 that it tells us that God does something. That's once the ark returns to the people of Israel. And yet, throughout chapter 5, throughout chapter 6, even though the text doesn't say God did this, it's worded in such a way to make it very obvious that God did this. And I think that's a helpful reminder to us as well as we live our lives because oftentimes our lives are not filled with these explicit signs and declarations that say, you know what, God did this. And yet, as we read 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 1 Samuel chapter 6, we can see that just because it doesn't explicitly say God did this, that God is in control, our lives are no less the same that God remains in control, that God is sovereign over all things. So we get to this point where the people of Dagon, they, they have instituted this, this worship practice that, unbeknownst to them, recognizes the superiority to, uh, of God to, to their false God. And we, we look at this, and it seems so ridiculous so foolish. How could they possibly see the superiority of their God to this God who in two straight days has, has proven his superiority to theirs? And we look at, at these people who are bowing down to this block of, of stone. And as I was reading this, I, I was laughing. And then I was reminded of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, 
which is idolatry. And all of a sudden, that laughter kind of just fizzles out in my own heart because I might not fall down before a block of wood or a block of stone and worship like the Philistines do, but, but I, I look at my life and I see plenty of times where I covet, plenty of times where I wish that I had the stuff that other people do, the life that other people do, and I begin to realize, you know what, maybe stuff has, has too good or too big of a hold on my heart. And then I read or think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, and he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I read that, and I realize that there are plenty of times in my life, times like right now, when inflation is running rampant, and there's a lot of uncertainty around the global economy. And I realize that there are plenty of times in my life where I'm trusting money a lot more than I should be. And Jesus says, I can't serve both God and money. And I might not be someone who falls down before a block of stone, a block of wood, and worship like the people of Philistia. But I definitely find happiness in places that aren't God. Where I don't give thanks to God for those things. I definitely find security in places that aren't Jesus. I absolutely find my sense of worth in other places. As I read chapter 5, I'm, I'm laughing, and yet at the same time, I realize that I, I'm like a Philistine. That all too often, I'm an idolater. That I chase after all of these other things. That I try to find all of this hope and sense of satisfaction and worth in all of these other things rather than in the Lord alone. I'm reminded of uh, this quote from Counterfeit Gods. It's this excellent book by Timothy Keller. It gives us this, these tools to diagnose our own idolatry today in our own hearts. He says this, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement or security and a comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, even success in, in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. You see, this passage is an excellent one to just laugh at idolatry, but it also asks us, if we're willing to listen, do we do the exact same thing, just in subtler ways? And as I consider these verses here, the first episode of our story, I think that's the, the question that we have to ask ourselves. This is the message of God and Dagon. It's this question, have I placed the living God under some false god? Am I guilty of placing the living God under a false God? Have I taken a, a, a false God like the Philistines and have I placed the true God under that? Have I taken the, the true God and made him subservient to my own heart, to my own desires, to my own wants? And as we're wrestling through that, this passage continues into the second episode, and it shows us not only God's glory over Dagon, but also over the Philistines themselves. That's what we see in verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Well, it seems that uh, 
for the people of, of Ashdod, they reach the conclusion, well, maybe the God of Israel isn't as weak as we once thought. And probably the surprising thing, it's not actually because God is triumphant over Dagon as much as it is because of his triumph over the people of Ashdod. They're willing to put up with what took place with Dagon, but now that they experience hardship in their own lives, they begin to realize, oh, what this God might actually be somewhat serious. And so a plague breaks out among the people of Ashdod. It breaks out into the surrounding villages, and we might see in verse 6 that it says that there are these tumors that break out, and one of the leading interpretation of these tumors, and I kid you not, is that hemorrhoids break out among the people of Ashdod. And that's a, that's a viable interpretation. That's what a lot of people who read this text say, you know what, there's this massive outbreak of hemorrhoids among the people of Ashdod, and God has afflicted them with these things. And, and, and that's possible. I, I, I read this, and, and I, I see in verse 11 and verse 12 that a number of people are dying from this, and I don't know, um, hemorrhoids are not fun, and yet not a lot of people die from them, and so it's probably something different. The other leading interpretation is actually that there's this outbreak of the bubonic plague in Ashdod. And so all of these tumors are actually the swelling of lymph nodes in armpits and groins and necks. And the people of of Ashdod are afflicted with this terrible plague that God has struck them with because of how they are treating him. This is a serious plague. And the people of Ashdod are understandably terrified. And they recognize the hand of the God of Israel is heavy against them, and they suddenly don't care about their victory trophy anymore and say, I don't know what's going on, but we need to get rid of this. And that's what they do in verse 8. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. So the people of Ashdod, they take the ark and they send it off to Gath, which is another leading city of the Philistines, and the moment the ark arrives in Gath, the bubonic plague breaks out. And there's this correlation here. And so the people of Gath, they say, whoa, 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 we got to get rid of the ark too. Let's get rid of this thing. Let's send it somewhere else. Where should we send it? And so they send it to another Philistine city. That's what we see in verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Apparently, the people of Ekron have actually got this a little bit better figured out than the other Philistine cities, because the moment the ark arrives, they're crying out that the other Philistine leaders, notice, the other Philistine leaders are trying to kill them because they are bringing the ark to Ekron. So they recognize that this death is following the ark of God, and so they say, we don't want it, let's get rid of it, get get it out of here, and yet that doesn't actually stop this outbreak from happening in Ekron. Notice that the text tells us that those who did not die were struck with tumors, implying that there's this wave of death, not just in Gath and not just in Ashdod, but in Ekron and throughout the land of the Philistines. We have a map I want to show you real quick. I mentioned that this, uh, the people of Philistia were treating the Ark of God as though it was a victory trophy, that they were showing their superiority to the God of Israel. And, and you can look here on this map, and you can see that there's this yellow line that shows us where the Ark goes, and it weaves its way throughout the land of the Philistines. And I love that it's almost like God is on a victory tour. He's showing his superiority over the people of the Philistines, That he's not just victorious over the people of Ashdod or of Gath, but of Ekron. 
That God is showing his glory, showing his superiority to all of the Philistines. And he's going from city to city. And we'll see the text implies that he actually goes, the ark goes from city to city and, and continues going throughout the land of the Philistines for another seven months. God is showing his glory over the people of Philistia. And you would think that the Philistines, they would get it in their minds. Yes, now we have to send the ark back to Israel, but that's not the case. Astoundingly, in chapter 6, verse 1, we see these words. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So the Philistines don't want to give up their war trophy. And so they continue to pass it around from city to city, village to village for several months. The whole time they're afflicted with the bubonic plague, and that's not all. Verse 5, and we'll read verse 5 in a second. Verse 5 tells us mice are ravaging the land of Philistia. So not only is the bubonic plague spreading rampant throughout the, the land of, of Philistia, there's also another plague that has broken out, that mice are everywhere eating their crops, and they endure this for seven months. Now there's one thing that I want to point out real quick about the significance of the mice here, Dagon, the god, the chief god of the Philistines, was the god of grain. So they prayed to him, they worshipped him because he would give them a good harvest. And yet one of the plagues that God sends to the people of the Philistines is a, a group of mice who ravaged the crops that, that Dagon, their god, that they pray to, that they worship, who will provide them with a good harvest, is shown to be completely powerless because these mice eat all of the food in the land of the Philistines. Well, this is uh, this moment where finally they realize, okay, this has happened for seven months. We, we've got to do something about this. They give up and they call their priests, ask their priests to come and help them and tell them what they should do. And that's what we see in verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So the priests, when they're called, the priests of, of probably Dagon, when they're called, they, they say, You know what? The evidence here is, is irrefutable. We have offended the God of Israel these past several months, and so what we need to do, in addition to sending the ark back, we have to admit we were wrong. This admission of guilt must be included with the ark so that the God of Israel will relent. Verse 4, and they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So as a guilt offering, they are supposed to make golden images of the, the swollen lymph nodes that they have been afflicted with, and to make golden images of the mice that have ruined their crops. And they're supposed to do this, they make five to symbolize the five leading cities and their surrounding villages that have been afflicted by this wrath from God. Verse five, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? These two verses are, are the heart of this part of the story. They, this part about the Philistines and God, and God proving his glory to the Philistines. At the end of the day, the Philistines have to give the God of Israel glory. That's what we see in verse 5. And yet to this point, that's what they've stubbornly refused to do. And so if they have any hope of not being completely wiped out, they have to, even if it's begrudgingly, they have to give God glory. And this is emphasized by the mention of Egypt and the Exodus in these two chapters, there's a number of allusions to the Exodus, another of references back to God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. 
And if you've been following along with us in our Take Up and Read plan, we're actually just getting into the story of the Exodus. And, and, and as you're reading over the next couple of days, and you read about the plagues and all of these different things, take a moment to, to consider the similarities between how God acted with the Egyptians and how God is acting with the Philistines. There's this repetition in both stories of God's hand against them of these plagues, of this deathly panic from the people, and this emphasis on God's glory. In fact, there's so many connections that as we read 1 Samuel 5 and 1 Samuel 6, we should ask the question, this is intentional. What is the author doing here? And to answer that, I think it's helpful for us to consider what exactly is the Exodus story about? It's not just about God saving his people. God says in three different places in the story of the Exodus that one of the reasons why he sends, or three reasons why he sends the plagues upon the Egyptians, first is so that God will receive glory from among the nations. That's what we see in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, that God would receive glory from all of these nations who are looking on. Second, we see that God sends plagues to the people of Egypt so that God will receive glory from the people of Israel. That's Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. That the people of Israel would see how glorious God is. And then the third thing is, so that God would receive glory from Pharaoh and from the people of Egypt. That's what we see in Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. I think our passage is making the exact same claim. God's purpose among the people of Philistia are threefold. First, to prove to the nations who are surrounding Israel, surrounding the Philistines, that are watching and saw the ark get captured, God is proving to them that he is glorious, that he is superior, that he is not to be trifled with. But not only that, he's also proving to his people who treated him as though he was just some sort of additional add-on that they could make God do whatever they want. God is proving his glory to the people of Israel. And as we see very clearly here, God is also proving his glory to the people of Philistia. He's showing them, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is superior to Yahweh, or to Dagon, rather. And that's what this second episode makes very, very clear. The diviners and the priests, they reluctantly admit that the God of Israel is stronger than their God. And so they say, well, let's just get rid of this ark. Let's just send him back. We have to give him glory. And that's the message of this second episode. It's a message about glory. Even God's enemies will one day glorify his name. One day, God's enemies, even his enemies, will glorify his name. Even the Philistines, these mortal enemies of the people of God, they, must, they will stop, and they will give glory to God. And the same thing is true for us today as well. All of God's enemies, whether it is militant atheism, or whether it's radical forms of Islam or other religions, whether it's just indifference, like, well, I call myself a Christian, but I really don't have any interest in actually believing or following the stuff that the Bible says. Or whether it's this secular humanism, I'm too busy living my best life right now to even think about God. The text tells us that one day everyone, whether willingly or begrudgingly, will give God the glory. No one and no thing will escape the glory of God. And that's not just true of the people in Philistia. It's also true of the people of Israel as well. And that's what we see in our final episode in this morning's passage. Let's go ahead and finish up with the plans of the Philistines, picking up in verse 7. So this is the, the priests saying that what they should do is they send the ark back. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it, on a, put it in a box on its side, or at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Bet Chemist, then it is he who has done us this great harm." But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us, it has happened to us by coincidence. The men did so, 
And they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the image of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beit Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beit Shemesh. I mentioned earlier that the Philistines reluctantly give God glory, and that's what we see here, because apparently they're still holding out hope that this is just a coincidence. Still holding out hope that maybe this is just one big unfortunate accident, and that, you know what, maybe Dagon actually isn't inferior to the God of Israel. And so they actually devise this plan, this test, to see what's causing this. Is it, is it God himself? And so they take two milk cows, and they've just given birth. They've never drawn a cart before, and they say, you know what, we're going to have these two animals that don't know how to draw a cart, don't know where Israel is. We're going to actually have them bring the cart or the ark back to Israel. No one's going to guide them. And if they go back to Israel, then we'll know that this is God. What's more, we're actually going to take their calves that they want to be with, by the way, and we're going to shut them up in a barn back here at home so they actually don't want to go to Israel. They want to stay here. So they're stacking the deck against God, hoping to prove that this is just a coincidence, hoping that they can keep the ark. And then they step back and watch to see what happens. Again, our text doesn't say that God is at work, but it's very clear that God is at work, right? The, the two cows, they head off right away toward Beit Shemesh. This is an Israelite city. The text tells us they don't turn to the right. They don't turn to the left the entire time. They're on one highway. They're headed back to Israel, and they're lowing because they don't want to go. They want to be back in uh, the land of the Philistines with their young cows, their calves. The entire way, they're not pulling the ark. The ark's pulling them. It's very clear that God is directing, guiding the ark back to Beit Shemesh. Verse 13. Now the people of Beit Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beit Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beit Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beit Shemesh. The ark arrives Back in Israel, there's great rejoicing because at long last, it feels like or looks like God has returned to his people. And so the citizens of Beit Shemesh, they take the cows and they offer them as a sacrifice to God. And it's a great ending to the story, right? Well, the story doesn't end there. Let's continue in verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beit Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Notice that this is the first time in these two chapters that it tells us that God is explicitly at work when he strikes the men of Beit Shemesh. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord has struck the people with a great blow. Stunningly, the people of Israel have learned nothing in the seven months that the Philistines had the ark. They celebrate the ark's return, and then after they celebrate a group of men, they decide to look upon the ark of the Lord. Notice that the text, and I know some translations say that they look in the ark, and, and, and yet more generally or, or more accurately, it, it just says they look upon the ark of the Lord. According to the law, no one is even supposed to look at the ark. When it's transported, it's supposed to be covered with a cloth so no one can see it because of how holy and glorious it is. And yet, we see the people in Beit Shemesh, once it comes back, they, they look at it with this irreverent, curious eye. One commentator actually describes the heart of their actions here as they set up a tourist attraction. They say, hey, come guys, come and look, we got the ark, look at how, how amazing it is, look at, look at how special we are, it's back. 
and it flies in the face of God's explicit commands on how they are supposed to treat this holy object. And so just as God afflicted the Philistines for their contempt for his glory, he does the exact same thing with his people here in Beit Shemesh. How do the people of Beit Shemesh respond? With repentance, right? That's what we hope. That they're like, you know what, we were wrong, we sinned. No, that's not what we see. Then the men of Beit Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The men of Beit Shemesh continue to act like Philistines. The ark is with them, and yet rather than repent, they say, someone come and get this ark because we don't want it here. Rather than doing the hard work of repentance and yet getting to continue to remain in the presence of God, they say, no, it's, it's easier to just get rid of it. We don't want God around us. And so they send for these people from Kiriath-Jerim. Significantly, Kiriath-Jerim is a primarily Gentile city. And say, hey, come and, get, come and get the ark from us. We don't want it anymore. Verse 1 of chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord from that day, or from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Israel has learned nothing. The men of Kiriath-Jerim, they're more righteous than the men of Beit Shemesh, and so they, they go through the right procedure of taking care of the ark. They consecrate the, these, this family, and, and the ark actually stays in Kiriath-Jerim, not just for 20 years, but until David, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, brings it to Jerusalem. This is generations that the ark remains in kiriath Jerem. And for 20 years, the people of Israel continued to suffer under the hand of the Philistines. Nothing has changed in Israel. And that's the sobering way that this passage ends with lament by asking us the exact same question of the, the men of Beshema should have asked themselves, do I take the glory of God seriously in my life? Here are the men of, of Beit Shemesh. They're setting up a tourist attraction. They see the glory of God as a way to, to just show off instead of actually treat God's glory with gravity. That's the heart of the issue here of the men of Beit Shemesh. They see the ark and by extension God's glory as just something that isn't worth taking seriously and they respond with irreverence they probably i guess they don't realize that god actually takes his own glory seriously and what about us do we take his glory seriously do we let it shape our thoughts do we let it shape our actions do we let it shape our patterns of life our text makes it clear whether it's dagon and idols whether it's the philistines or whether it's israelites the people of god god cares about his glory and no one and no thing can escape the glory of God. It's abundantly clear from this passage. The Philistines and the men of Beit Shemesh, when they're forced to come face to face with the glory of God, rather than repentance, rather than the hard work of obedience, they choose fear and flight. So get away from us. They want to run away from God. They don't want anything to do with God. And it's a good thing to start with fear. There's a, there's a good thing about the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It reminds us of how we should live. It reminds us that God cares about how we live our lives. And yet, rather than flight, running away from God, it should lead us to repentance and faith. Honestly, as I look at this passage, the two most sobering verses here are verse 12 and verse 16. It says this, The lords of the Philistines went after them, that's the cows, as far as the border of Beit Shemesh. 
And then skip to verse 16. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These, were, these verses are, are so powerful, meaningful, significant to me because they show us, make it very clear, the Philistines had a chance to repent. They saw everything. They were left without excuse. They knew that this was the superiority, the glory of the God of Israel, and they had a chance to repent, and instead of doing that, they decided to run back home to Dagon and to their idolatry. Just imagine for a second if they would have responded differently. If they would have responded with widespread repentance, they, they go back to Ekron and they say, hey, you know what? We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this God, the God of Israel, is superior and glorious and much better than our God. So let's leave behind our God and follow after the true living God. And that's not what they choose to do. They knew what they should have done and yet did not do it. This text here is a sobering warning for each and every one of us that the glory of God is inescapable, and if we live lives of indifference, if we live lives uh, of, of disobedience, if we bow to idols, if our lives are ruled by false gods, honestly, if, we, if we're here and we hear the word of God and we ignore it, God says we are without excuse. The glory of God is a terrifying thing. And that's what the Philistines learned. That's what the men of Beit Shemesh learned the hard way. No one and no thing can escape the glory of God. But that's not just a warning. It's actually an incredible promise as well because the glory of God is not just inescapable, it's also inexhaustible. The ark remains in Kiriath-Jerim until David brings it to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 6. So you might be familiar with 2 Samuel chapter 6. There, there's this huge uh, ensemble that's bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And uh, they're not doing it the right way. They're actually carrying it the, uh, improperly. And so something happens. And, and uh, this man named Uzzah, he, he reaches out and puts his hand on the ark to, to prevent it from falling onto the ground. And actually he's struck because of the anger of God for treating God not as holy. And David is terrified. David's actually so afraid that he goes, instead of bringing the ark to Jerusalem, he finds the closest farmhouse and says, hey, I got this terrifying object. I'm going to leave it here. And he leaves the ark. Basically says, I'm the king. Thanks for taking this off my hands. Good luck. 2 Samuel chapter 6. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You know, these are some of the most incredible verses in the entire Old Testament to me. Because Obed-Edom is, what does it say? He's a Gittite. What's a Gittite? A man of Gath. A Philistine. We have Obed-Edom here. A Philistine. And the ark of God is with him for three months. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, we see the ark is among the Philistines for seven months and God shows his glory by pouring out wrath on these people who will not take his, his glory seriously. But in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see the ark is with another Philistine for three months, and this time, rather than showing his glory by pouring out wrath, God shows his glory by pouring out blessing after blessing after blessing. What's the difference? Obed-Edom did what the Philistines refused to do. To respond to the glory of God with repentance and faith. 
We don't know how Obed-Edom became a follower of the Lord. It's possible that while the ark was in Gath, as we saw in chapter 5, his family realized, hey, you know what? Maybe Dagon isn't worth following. We should follow the God of Israel. Maybe that's when they moved to the people of Israel and joined the family of God. We don't know. But we do know that here is a man who understood the glory of God, and yet rather than running away from it, he ran toward it. The person of Obed-Edom is one of the most fascinating people in the Old Testament. You look at, at 1 Chronicles chapter 15, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, you see that Obed-Edom, actually his family, they're singers in the temple. But because they're Gentiles, they're not allowed to be in the temple. And so they actually stand outside of the temple and they're called gatekeepers. They, they hold the doors of the temple open and they're singing and they're welcoming the people of God as they come into worship because they got it. They understood the glory of God and they knew what life was like without that glory. And they, so they said, you know what, we're going to do whatever we can not to run away from his glory but run toward it because we want to worship that glorious, glorious king. What about us? When we consider the glory of God, what, what does it lead to? Indifference? Now we'll worry about that later. Fear and flight? Maybe repentance and faith? This text is asking us, are you going to be like the, the men of, of Gath and Beit Shemesh, or are we going to be like the man of Gath, Obed-Edom? This man who sought his greatest privilege to devote his life to the Lord, to the glory of God, to be in his presence. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being merciful. Thank you for being holy. Thank you for being king. God, we ask that as we consider your glory that we would run to you that we would live lives of obedience, faithfulness, that we would honor you with our lives and not run away from you. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.